You are listening to the Tricer Podcast, where we talk all things hunting, gear, and the great outdoors. Before we begin, let's start things out right and put God first. Lord Jesus, I thank you for Tricer, and I ask that you can use this podcast as a way to bring joy to all of our listeners. We lay Tricer and this podcast at your feet. Amen. Tricer Podcast, Robert Clark, how you doing? Good, man. How are you? Doing really good. Uh, Robert is a guide out of Utah, and uh, I don't think I had any guides on yet, and I wanted to bring a guide on and get a guy's perspective on things and kind of talk about guided hunts a little bit and how you got into hunting and pick your brain a little bit. Yeah, let's do it, man. <laughs> How'd you get into hunting? Basically, just at an early age, following dad and my grandpa and uncle through the woods, the whole bread bags over the feet, and then you slip the boots on and just following family around, and then eventually got to an age where I could start going out on my own with my older brother and just kind of excelled from there. Okay. So you say bread bags over your feet, keep your feet from getting wet. Yeah. I guess you guys don't have that too much in California, but uh, no, yeah, that was one of the big things because we didn't have all the greatest gear and definitely the gear is taking such huge strides. But yeah, back in the day, we used to throw on a pair of socks and put bread bags over the feet and then put on another pair of socks. It's a good way to keep your feet warm and keep them dry. Do you think, because like I have kids, right? I have five kids. And I guess as I've gotten, like when I grew up, we didn't have a lot of money. So it's nice as I've gotten older, like to buy my kids decent gear. They don't have the best gear. A lot of times my kids get my, like my passed down boots or really running nice sure. stuff. Do you think we have, is your generation tougher than like today's generation? Because of stuff like that. I would say to a degree, obviously I'm biased, but <laughs> I would say to a degree, I know some some older guides and some older hunters that man, they just, they throw on the flannel jacket and they're good to roll. And you're just like, here you are stacking on layers of Moreno and these absolutely great systems that we have now. And it seems like we're getting the same results almost to a degree, but I would say definitely the older generation, a lot tougher when it comes to hunting. Yeah. I I, I mean, cause I have all the gear on, I mean, I own a gear company, I guess you'd say, right. So, but I guess it's nice to be comfortable, right? So it's not necessarily that we couldn't do it in real trade from Walmart. But it is nice to be comfortable and be able to have these layering systems now because it's available, right? So we don't want to not use it. I just feel like, I don't know, there's almost like this weird, like my kids, you don't really see them drinking from a hose, garden hose. But I feel like we all drink from garden hoses, right? Or you just don't, I don't know, it's just a different time than when we were kids. How old are you right now? 40. 40, yes, you're out. I'm, I'm 37. It's around the same generation, right? The kind of a latchkey out there riding bikes all the time till dark and yeah. I just don't see that anymore. No, that, and there's something to be said about that hose water. I don't know what takes place from the city water to the hose, but there's definitely some added strength in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Even the whole, and this is more so off the top of where I want to go with this, but like the whole bottled water thing. I and mean, if you would have told us when we were kids or told our parents that we were going to buy bottled water, they would have thought you were crazy. Oh, absolutely. Half the time, I didn't even use a cup. I would just stick my face under the faucet. <laughs> Yeah, for sure. So you're out there chasing grandpa around, got the bread bags on your feet, chasing dad around. I'm sure you're, and you grew up in Utah, yeah? Yeah, yep. Grew Born up in raising, Utah. Where, where in Utah? I grew up in Salt Lake City, sub-neighborhood of Rose Park, probably about, I don't know, I'd say 20, 30 minutes away from any like really good hunting up in the Wasatch Mountains. So you grew up hunting the Wasatch, I was going to ask. Yep, grew up hunting the Wasatch and all along the Wasatch Front. So Wasatch has got, you guys even have moose in the Wasatch, yeah? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, we have the Shiros moose. It's a smaller breed of all the mooses, but, you know, uh, there, there's no such thing as a small moose. Yeah, they're giant. They're giant for sure. Tell me about your first animal. What was that like? Man, it was quite a long time ago. It, 
It was a small buck. It was nothing to write home about. It was just a uh, more. Actually, it was a family member that found it, and I just pulled up the rifle and shot. I wish there was um, a big long lead story to it and some other things, but there wasn't. There was just, hey, grab one right there. Go ahead and shoot that one. That was it. That was it. it was, yeah, yeah. There wasn't too much. There wasn't too much involved in it. So, Unfo- so unfortunately, for- I wish there was some big dramatic story. Maybe I need to come up with one. But yeah, no, there, got- there, but so, no, there, so you got that done. You got that done. Get your first deer. I imagine you continued to hunt through high school, right? Because then you went in the military, right? Actually, so surprisingly, I didn't do too much hunting in high school. I did here and there, not to the degree that some of these youngsters now are just—they're getting after it. They're really putting the boots to the hills and putting the miles on and getting time in the field. I would say I didn't really do that in high school. I hunted during hunting season, mostly just going out with family. And it's a lot of times when we would go out hunting, it would be a family camping trip that turned hunting. So everyone's camping, dad, cousins, everybody would slip off in the morning, come back in the afternoon type deal. So it wasn't like full on backcountry hunting or anything like that. So then you go, you went straight in the military, right? Just came out of San Diego. Yep, I went straight into the military, did my time in the Marine Corps, loved every minute of it. And it was once I got out and came back to Utah, that's when I really started like driving and pushing for hunting. Just that's where it was, became my niche to get outside and, and mm-hmm. yeah, to get out in the get out in the hills and just be outdoors. I've always been really well outdoors. Um and it just almost just fell in place. And how long after that did you start guiding? Because you're almost, you guide pretty much full time. Pretty much, pretty close with the amount of hunts I do in the season. Um, I guess it'd be pretty close to considering full time, but for all intents and purposes, with part time, it's seasonal. I started doing that. This will be coming up on my fifth season. Okay. And, so, and ultimately, what led up to it was I was doing a lot of hunting, I was doing a lot of archery hunting, and just through work and guys that I was working with that would get interested hey what are you doing oh i'm shooting the bow at lunch on and so forth they became interested and started buying gear and bows and hey can i come with you this year and that's when i just really realized that i I get just as much out of taking somebody and showing somebody than going out and just hunting for myself Mm -hmm. yeah it's something i really enjoy doing it was helping people out and taking new people and introducing new people into the outdoor world to bow hunting and doing some rifle hunting and you get a lot more tags, right? In theory, because you're on their tags now. So you get to be out in the field a lot more than your one elk tag a year, one elk tag every five years. You get to go on yeah. epic hunts. Yeah. yeah, definitely. That's how I really, I wouldn't say, I've always had an act for the outdoors, but it wasn't probably until 2015 through 18 that I really started getting serious about hunting, doing some backcountry stuff, going out solo, and really just pay attention, paying attention to how I was hunting. Because before, like I said, it was just going out with family and we'd go drive around and do the old road shuffle. And sometimes you see things, sometimes you don't. But then I really started digging deep and learning about patterns, hunting transition points, and just really started diving into it a bit deeper. Go into that more. You're saying patterns, transition points, versus just showing up out there and driving around hoping you see something. Now you're learning where they're going to be. Yeah, learning where they're going to be by the seasons, the elevation. Has it been a year with plenty of moisture and feed? Sorry, going back to transition points, Go continue with that. A lot of times, and I don't know, maybe a little bit different from everybody, but growing up, we'd go to lookout spots or we'd find a meadow that was accessible and, and we'd sit it. Mm-hmm. And so I, I was talking with Cody Rich about this not long ago, but no, well, like, why are you sitting? Well, yeah, I'm sitting there because I want to hunt. I, I want to shoot an animal. 
I want to harvest mm-hmm. an animal, but why are you sitting in that specific spot? <laughs> really getting into, is this a transition area? Are they coming to and from this area? Are they, is there bedding nearby? What is bringing them here? Not just sitting in a meadow, just to sit in the meadow and watch it or to look over an outcropping or, or anything. Just really trying to figure out while you're hunting, what are you doing and for what purposes? Does that make sense? It does. It does. And at the same time too, like, I feel like a lot of times we look at something and we're like, oh, that looks really good to me as a human, but we're not looking at it through an animal perspective. Sometimes, especially when you're pushing on, that open meadow looks awesome, but there's probably not going to be elk in there. If you were to go one half mile over into that ca- canyon where there might be a little bit of water in the bottom, that's where the elk's going to be. Oh, yeah. It could be a completely different story. And that, and I guess that's what I'm talking about. That's because a lot of people will walk through the woods, whether they're walking with the wind or not, who knows what's happening. But uh, they might just pick a spot on a log and say, I have a good vantage point here and I have a good vantage point here and this is a good place to sit. Okay. But is, is it though? You just picked a random spot in the woods. What's half a mile to your left? What's half a mile to your right? Where are you in relationship to where the animal is going to be? And how much of that comes from preseason scouting and knowing an area versus just knowing if I could, if I drop you into Idaho right now, would you have a good idea of where to go for elk without ever being in that unit? Without ever being in the unit? I mean, without doing some e-scouting or putting boots on the ground? Yeah, I, I do fairly well. Just looking at the topography, looking for green patches up on the hillside, looking for quakey stands, shelves in, in a tree line. I'd, I'd, it'd take me probably a few days, but I would, I'd track something down. You start figuring it out. Oh, yeah. And how much of that is like now with you talking about e-scouting? How much e-scouting are you doing when you're going? And I'm assuming you're drawing your own tags as well, going out of state or going other places. Um, how important is e-scouting to that? E-scouting is huge. Because a, a lot of times you, you can't get out. We got families, people, full-time jobs. A lot of times you can't get out. So being mm-hmm. able to e-scout and look at some maps and even go back historically and look at precipitation and some of those other things, uh, it's huge. Absolutely. Looking at burns as well. Yeah, I feel yeah, like... Burns. Burns is another big one. Like, by no means do I get to start off on the level of you or Cody or these guys. But I do feel like, like you were talking about, as I've done this longer, I've only been big game hunting now for about a decade, no more than a decade. Things have started to slow down for me. And I've really started to understand how to find animals by spending a lot less time walking in circles and a lot more time finding animals. Because things have slowed yeah. down. I've kind of understood, started to understand the animals, understand that there's going to be like, especially my, my thing is coos deer. I can look in an area and know where deer are going to be and know where not to waste my time. Or before I might have spent four hours glassing that there'd be no deer. You should learn exactly. where they should be. And same thing with elk. You yeah. know, they're going to be here, not out in these, especially I just hunted Arizona. And there's so many guys on these like rolling hills that have roads. You can get up and stop, stop your F-250 on a glass room, but there's no elk. Exactly. But if those guys were to go literally as the crow flies a mile, but it, you can't get there with your truck, they would find, you know, sometimes we were finding 10 bulls in a day just by kind of knowing what elk are going to do and where they're going to be and how they're going to react. Exactly. And that's what I'm talking about is people go out and sit on a hillside and no glass until their eyes bleed. Mm-hmm. But the area you're glassing, yeah, you might have a straggler go through there, but it's it's not where they're going to be. And, and that's tough in every unit. You can't just pick a spot and say, this is where they're going to be. They make their own rules, but having the inclinations of, just a little bit of experience of kind of being able to guesstimate some of their patterns and looking at feed and water of where they're going to be. So, so I was talking about bulls. If you are going to a unit that you've never been to before, what are you looking for in every unit, no matter what? I feel like it's pretty much the same no matter where you go. 
need a certain things. What are you looking for? Food, water, cover. Food, water, cover. Yep. Food, water, cover. And in between all those items, drainages, drainages that have shelves on them where they may want to bed down, heavy quakey patches, thicker pines, anywhere where they're going to have any of those three items in between on their migration path. Because even though they migrate from a summer ground to a winter ground seasonally, but even during the season, they'll make their round like any animal will. You hear people talk about all the time. I had this deer on camera two days ago. Every two days I see him or something similar to that effect. They're going to move from a bedding area to a feeding area to a watering. And if they choose to stop in between them, that's just what they're going to do. But it's knowing those areas and knowing what lies in between those areas is where you're going to track them down. I think for me, like consistently finding elk or finding bulls, it's almost always going to be about a mile I find a mile from where our road is going to be or somewhere, even if it's not a mile, <clears throat> somewhere where it's hard to get into by foot. I find that northeast facing slopes always, right? So if I can find a northeast facing drainage that has water in it and dark timber, it's I know there's going to be an elk in this thing. And I could probably find one or pull one out of it. And then being there, because typically they're going to feed out that first hour of the morning, right? Honestly, the evenings, I feel like it's a little bit harder to pick them up. You might get them for a little bit, but you better be in position to kill them. But in, sure. look, if you can find those things like on a map, on Onyx or whatever, find the northeast facing slopes, find where you think there's going to be water running and the dark timber, you're probably going to find some elk in there. Yeah. Any circumstance like that where you're finding the north facing slope, they tend to have a little bit more shade. And if there's shade, then there's usually a, a little bit more growth as far as feed. It's not just mm-hmm. out getting beat by the sun. So yeah, those are, those are all the things to look for. Yeah, I find too, like um, this might be just like, kindergarten stuff for people. Like if I'm hot or I'm sitting, the elk are definitely going to be hot or the deer are definitely going to be hot. So they're probably not going to be sitting in the same position I am. So a lot of times I will say, you'll walk into an area and it's super cool. If you go to one of those northeast facing slopes, it can be 15 degrees cooler than it is on the opposite hillside. So a lot of times what I'll do is I'll be sitting in the sun uncomfortable looking into, if I'm sitting in shade, I'm probably not going to find the elk. I'm going to try and look into where it's going to be cooler and you're going to find the elk and find the deer. And when there's something to be said about, especially with elk, steep and deep. <laughs> yeah. you know, elk, elk hunting is a lot of up the hill, down the hill. And usually to get to those areas, they all tend to be in deep, steep areas, canopied. Not all the time, but just good vegetation. They're big animals. They generate a lot of heat. Yeah, that's for sure. That's for sure. When we shot a cow, we couldn't find it until the next morning. It just it got dark on us, couldn't find it. And we actually had meat sour overnight. It was cool. But they're just so hot, those things. We had oh. on, the, on the bone, uh, right on the, the hip joint, sour in there. Th- those things are just heaters, but they're capable of li- living in negative degree temperatures. Yeah, elk are just incredible animals. I, I love elk. And you're absolutely right. Just the heat they put off. Yeah, that's why getting them dressed out and getting that meat cooled down is, is of utmost importance. So there's definitely been a steep learning curve for me hunting. And I've been on a few guided hunts. I think my, my, my first animal I killed was a pig. That was a guided hunt. I actually learned a lot doing that. What benefit is there to getting a guide, like as a new hunter? So there's a lot of, as a new hunter, into hunting and being brand new or even just having a little bit of an experience. There's a couple reasons. So there's like tag allocations, depending on where you're going. If it's guided, you're, there's a possibility uh, more than likely that uh, you, you have guaranteed tags. Mm-hmm. But mostly, and, I, and I've heard a lot of people say it before, when hunting with a guide for one year or or two is probably equivalent to a DIY figured out on your own, which could take you five or six years. Just 
the things that you're going to pick up and they're going to carry with you because it's new and you're just, they're pulling in all that information. And it just, it's not just hunting in general and being in the area. It's how you pack your pack, how you carry your rifle, how certain things that you're doing that, well, that you see your guy doing or picking up tips. They're just, they're huge. A lot of people go out and hunt and don't have the first clue of how to pack the pack a certain way or how to carry a pack, having it higher up on your hips so you're all the weight's not on your shoulders, just a, a lot of different things. So there's definitely some advantages to hunting with a guide as a new hunter and probably yeah. on the success side too. Yeah, I can tell you on the pack stuff, I can't tell you how much gear I threw away or gave away because I bought the wrong stuff. And that would have been just cut in half by having a guy. You're just buying like anything you can think of or trying to figure it out and on your own or like that learning curve. I had Brad hunt on uh, last week from Gertie and he made a good point. He said they hunt like a hundred days a year. He's, he was saying that they hunt what it takes the average guy five years to do. They hunt in one year. So someone like you, you're out hunting all fall into the spring, right? And you guys on the fence, the spring bear season as well. You're hunting hundreds of days a year. You're going to have yeah. a ton of experience to give to this guy who, you know, even if, even if he doesn't have grandpa, a lot of guys, they get, they get mad because not mad, but they get, oh, I started at 25. I didn't have family that taught me how to hunt. Even with, if, even if you had grandpa, it would have taken him his whole lifetime to get to where some of you guys are getting in five, six, seven years. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's been, well, so this last season, I think I did, it was either 10 or 11 and they're five day hunt. And granted, some some hunts only go three days, depending if we tag out early, and some go the distance of five. But yeah, you're, I was pretty much from I would say it was what August 29th through November 17th. I was in the hills, maybe <laughs> one or two days off here and there, uh, or a, or a three day. I think I had in the middle. I think I had a four day break, and I was back to the hills. And you love it. I love it. That's Can't awesome. Get enough of it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, so you, you go, you hunt the rut, you hunt elk, obviously, right? Yeah. And then do you continue to go elk or do you transfer into the deer and whatever tags are coming on? So with the CWMU, the dates are a little bit different. We get the elk in the rut and we get the deer in the rut. What is CWMU? It's Cooperative Wildlife Management Unit here in Utah. Okay. With an outfitter being on private land, you can hunt all the season for the rut and pre-rut and post-rut. Okay. So we have, we'll have elk hunters from early season in August for archery all the way through November, through mid-November. Really? So you guys, are these are people buying tags from landowners? Is that what's happening on this property? This land? Say that again? Yeah. So, so it's the landowners. The landowners have a lease with the outfitter and the outfitter is allotted X amount of tags throughout the year okay. that they can sell. And then a percentage of the tags being sold go to public draw okay so it's, yeah so it's essentially it's a limited entry unit okay and depending on the outfitter they have x amount of tags to sell per species i'm not sure on the exact numbers that's between the outfitter and the division and so forth but so i didn't realize that so you could actually so i could personally draw a cwm tag as a non-guided hunter so cwmu tags are only eligible to residents okay but at, for a draw but okay. but being in California, if you, you could purchase, you know, a tag. Purchase tag. But yeah. you but so you could draw a CWMU tag without a guide and go hunt that unit if you drew it. Yes. Okay. And That's actually, really cool. And, and actually, I have the points to draw that this coming season. <laughs> <laughs> what is it? What, how many points does it take you as a resident to draw that tag? For rifle, anywhere between like eight and ten, you're probably, you're in the zone. Obviously, mm -hmm. anything above, it, you got like a one and one or 
opportunity. But yeah, between eight and 10 points is you're probably right on par with dropping that tag. And you are, you're planning on drawing this year or trying to? That's the plan. <laughs> and you're going to draw, you're going to do a uh, rifle, not like early muzzleloader? Oh, uh, it'll be rifle. Right. Yeah. I guess when I talk about muzzleloader, how do you feel about the new muzzleloader laws over there with the uh, going to uh, no? Uh, I, I, I'd say it's good. Me personally, I say it's good. It, it definitely has some pros and cons. I, I say bringing it back a little bit more to fair chase, fairness for the animal. I don't. I personally don't see anything wrong with limiting a muzzle loader to a, a one power because yeah, there's some awesome muzzle loaders out there, but I don't think you need to be taking super long shots with a muzzy just for the ethics of the animal. Yeah, that's how I feel about it too. I know Colorado did that. I'm from San California, so we have a open sights only. You can use modern muzzlers, but it has to be open sights. So I, I do support it. It's, it's gotten to a point where Americans are so awesome that we're making 500-yard single-shot rifles. We find a way. It's like anything. We find a way to play in that gray area. And more power to everyone who did it. And there's even some cool peep sights that are coming out right now. I think Gunworks has one that is a dialing peep sight that you can shoot super far. So Absolutely. Uh, we always no, find I, a way. I think, like I said, I it, it pros and cons, but... What would you say your average shot is for a muzzleloader on a big game animal? The, the, uh, under one fifty is my goal would be. Under one fifty, okay. Um, and, under, and under I would agree. I'd say two hundred under one fifty high side, perfect circumstances. But anything further than that, <laughs> should we really be taking shots like that? Can can it be done? Absolutely, hundred percent. I've seen guys take some awesome pokes with muzzies and great shooter, great equipment. But I, I just don't think we need to be taking shots that far. A lot can go wrong. A lot can happen. A lot of variables. And ultimately, as hunters, we're, our, our goal is to harvest an animal in an ethical manner. So I think open mm-hmm. sights or a one-power scope, def- I don't think it needs to be further than that 150-200 at all. Because you you give, you give just open up the, the gate and say, yeah, hey, I would agree with that. Throw a, you know, a 416 by 50 on there and, you know, you got people taking these long pokes. And that's, I don't know. For me personally, I just don't think that's doing the animal service. Because you have a probably a higher probability of making a mistake, not placing a good shot. Yeah. Um, and that's as what we try to do as sportsmen is to avoid those circumstances of making bad shots and bad hits. Yeah, and the same goes for me with rifles. Like I have the bitchin' rifles, right? And they're full of capable of shooting a thousand yards. And I'm turning it back and I'm like, man, like that four hundred yard mark, that quarter mile is a real ethical range and under. And I'm actually kicking around, and it could be, this is just me. I'm not knocking shooting 700, 700 yards, 600 yards, you know, more power to you if you can do it. I just see so much stuff going yeah. wrong over that quarter mile mark, 420, just where the wind starts playing a role. And I'm honestly like kicking around, just going and getting like a, a wood stock, a walnut yeah. stock, 30 out six, and I'm with it for three for a sub, years. Put it's a just, and, <clears throat> no, and I'm with you on that as well. When it comes to taking rifle shots, uh, we all know that there's rifles out there capable of a mile and easily shooting 1,000, 1,200 yards at an animal. But in my thinking, my thought process is, if you're, you know, this 300 PRC, accuracy and the amount of kinetic energy it carries, you could easily kill something out to 1,000 plus, depending on that. But if you're 1,000 yards away, if you, if you hit it, if you hit it, if you hit at 1,000 yards away, if you, hit it. You, you can almost <laughs> have a conversation as we are now. And they're not going to have a clue where you're at. So if you're posting mm-hmm. up on an animal 1,000 yards away, why can't you move five, six hundred in? Doing the things that you're supposed to be doing. Maybe even taking the long way might most be might not be the most direct route, but you can get yourself in a better position for you to make a great shot and to have an ethical harvest on it. And 
It, Plus, it's funner. It's it's more enjoyable to make that stock. It's just something bitching about using the landscape and using these rocks and using that rim rock and getting behind this hill and popping up. Are they still there? There's something to be said about that versus just slinging lead. uh, One of the things I've noticed, and I do it all the time, but it's okay to put that animal to bed. If you spot them at a thousand yards, you of course, unless it's Mm -hmm. the last hour of the season and you're just trying to make something happen. Yes, yeah, sprinkle some fairy dust in the air and beeline it down that draw. Beeline up the other side and try to make something happen because your season's coming to an end mm-hmm. and you need to push. If you have a couple days and you've spotted some potential bulls or bucks at a thousand yards away, watch them. Watch them till dark. Watch them lay down. Make a plan. Come at them in the morning from a different angle mm-hmm. or a better approach to get yourself within that 400 yards, 500 yards, and then make an ethical shot. And so many people see animals. We got to go. Not all the time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that YouTube's kind of ruined, not almost ruined hunting, but ruined people's perspectives on what their rifles can do. And these rifles are way more capable than us. We had a few instances on this elk hunt we just saw where some guys who, honestly, when you see them, you're like, you never would have got that out anyways. You're not in shape. We're flinging yeah. lead over a thousand yards and going 15 shots. They don't even know where they were. And they're just shooting down into this canyon. I mean, my kid are down here, 400, 500 yeah. yards away from these elk. These guys are just shooting. They're going back, back to the side by side, getting more. And it's yeah, well, they're probably they're not even going to get, get down here to find this thing. The chances of them you know? making an, an ethical shot is, is, you know, if they're taking that many shots, it's they have no business shooting that far. And not only, not to mention, you've burned that yeah. area for yeah, everybody and, else. Oh, yeah. Oh, and that area was the opening day, or the day before opening day, we saw 12 bulls in there. No, and by yeah. like day two or three, it was like non-existent. <laughs> they were just like, screw you guys. It's because they're just because people were flinging from the top of this rim. And we were the, I never saw another person down in the canyon with us, uh, down in there, because it was just people didn't want to hike down. But multiple people just taking these long shots. And almost like you have to hope you hit it, you shouldn't pull the trigger. And like I have these deer silhouettes that I make in my shop. I'll take people to go to the desert yeah, like- and it's like you put about six hundred yards. A little bit of wind, and you're shooting it in the guts. You're shooting it in the neck. It's not. It's this, yeah. elevation's easy. Yeah, we can use elevation all day long. It's that wind well, drift that over is, a quarter mile that gets it's really tricky to calculate. But when people are taking those types of shots, okay, maybe you have a wind reading. Let, let's say you have a kestrel, and you're you're pulling your wind at your position mm-hmm. where you're shooting from. That has nothing to do, especially over a thousand yep. yards, with the one giant drainage or the two smaller drainages separating you and your target. That wind could be completely different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think what you don't see on these YouTube videos is the, the first two <laughs> or three shots that they didn't record. It's, it's very possible. <laughs> Where they got their dope, I, you know. It's just hard. When you start shooting long range and you start seeing, it's just, it's hard to believe that every one of these thousand hundred yard shots are hitting on the mark first time like that and they're not missing. It's just... Right. People need to not do it. It's there's so much going on there. And like you said, it's when you're taking a shot at a thousand yards, there is no shot I could think of in right. my life no. where I couldn't get closer to a thousand yards. <laughs> I guess it's five hundred yards, maybe, like Canyon to Canyon, Arizona, it gets hard some of these spots and some of these big canyon to country, hill country stuff. Oh. But a thousand yards, you can yards, close that gap. Hey, you have no reason to good or you're paying attention to the wind. You can have a, a conversation, not not as loud as we are now, but 
you could have a conversation. They, they don't even know you're there at that point. As long as you're not skylined or doing something ridiculous mm-hmm. outside the box, there's no reason why you can't close that distance. Yeah, And not to mention, you talked about in the beginning, what is our understanding of the choke points, their patterning, say you're day two or three, you kind of you start to learn where they're going to go. Oh, 100%. You can make that get in position before they're going to go. They're probably not going to keep standing in the middle of that meadow after right. 7 a.m. They're probably going somewhere. Where are they going? Okay, let's get in position to where they're going to go. Get them killed. Know the thermals, know your wind, and come up with a plan and you'll and execute it. And, it, uh, here's, and here's and another. Thermals are the worst. Yeah, thermals. <laughs> <laughs> so hard. <laughs> Two or three in the afternoon the thing is a killer. For example, the area we guide in, we know what areas the wind's going to be coming this way. We know mm-hmm. it's going to go this way. It, it, it's almost like clockwork. But uh, going back to taking those shots, and mm-hmm. one thing that I've encountered and seen is people are taking these shots. And okay, let's just say you can, you're hitting a four inch group, a five inch group at 100 yards, whatever the case may be. You, you're a good shot. You have steady grip, mm-hmm. squeeze. You have it under control, right? From a bench mm-hmm. in a control, to a degree, a controlled environment, yeah. whether you're out on a shooting range or something like that. And then you toss in some hills, some exertion, some conditions, and not shooting from a bench with your headphones on and everything else. Are you still mm-hmm. good of a shot as you were when you practiced at the range? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb here and say, 100%. you're not 100%. Yeah, exactly. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, that's what I mean. I never said you're right. I always use the example of my kid's first deer. We park the truck and then we hike three miles straight, a thousand foot elevation gain. And then we glass up the deer by the truck. So we have to come all the way back down. And it was like open desert kind of hill country here in San Diego. And so we ended up getting set up on her. It was a doe tag. It was 280 yards. But we set up on, it was a steep downhill, but we ended up being on oh, an hill. So we're getting stung by ants and he's trying to get set up on this deer. And they got, I had welts from these ants getting us. And it's, that's a situation you do when you're hunting. You're like, try and put, you know, get into a scorpion, put your angles into the back of your head to try and shoot sometimes. Cause you're not going to, it's like finding that perfect, awesome flat rock to shoot from few and far between, right? It's, it's going to be this tough. You're going to, you know, you're going to, your legs going to be cramped up and tired and you're going to, you might be laying there for an hour, you know, like we were on my kid's hunt when he shot his buck here in Arizona this year. I had to take his boots off or loose his because his feet went, went to sleep. He was sitting there so long waiting for this thing to step out because <laughs> you know? his, his feet went numb because it was just yeah, and then, you know, the position he was in. His legs exactly what I'm There's just so many variables, whether it's swollen feet, ant hills, out of breath because you just beelined it straight up the hill, wind. There, there's just so many variables that come into play. Just slow down, close that distance, and put on a good shot. Mm-hmm. And I think that kind of brings us full circle to the guide thing. That's where you come in. Right. As the guy who like my first time ever elk hunting, I'm coming out to go elk hunting. I'm excited. Every elk I see, I'm running after, I'm trying to kill them. And you're just saying, whoa, 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 hold on. If you we're, wait an hour, walk into the his, wind's going to go down here. We're going to walk into his bedroom. And then that elk is going to walk. We're going to walk into his bedroom. Exactly. And that's where that guy thing really does settle you down and help you learn some of that stuff. So what about this on the guide, going out with the guide? So there's this like this stigma. Oh, if you get a guide, it's not real hunting, blah, blah, no. blah. It's just you're guaranteeing an animal. And that is not the case. I've been on not a ton of guided hunts. I've been on a few. And never once have I been on one where it was just like, I walked out there and the, the deer walked up to lick my barrel and I shot it. No. Still a hunt. <laughs> there are some hunters out there hunted with them particularly, but there are some out there where they they put you in a stand and but 10, 12, and 2, the feeder spins, 
for us, it, it's not like that at all. You're going to put miles on. You could go a few days without seeing anything. You could go several. There's a lot of things. There's a lot of variables that we can control, but there's a lot that we can't control the weather. We can't, things like that. But no, if, if you're, if there's that stigma of, oh, I'm going with a guide, I'm just going to step out of the truck and I'm going to pop one. And no, if you're looking for a Will Western hunting experience, do your homework, pick a reputable outfitter and you're going to have a Western experience. Even with all the amenities and things that come along with having a guide, I mean, you still can't control the animals. I would disagree with that completely. Yeah. And you guys are still, if it's snowing, you're out there, if it's raining, you're out there, you're still having to go and play oh, the wind, do, you deal with all the factors that are in there. Really and you're competing with other hunters as well. Um, an area like we're in on our CWMU, you have a lot of educated animals. You have a lot of hunters coming in and out. You have mm-hmm. a lot of guides and they're just getting educated. The animals get educated real quick and they'll teach you a thing mm-hmm. or two. They'll humble you real quick because it's not that scenario at all to where you wake up, pop in the truck, go out, shoot something, come back. It's a lot of animals and they're educated. If you go out there tooting your cow call, you sound like garbage or you're doing it at the wrong times. And yeah, they're going to pick up on that. The average age class bull in our area is probably between four and seven or so. I'm not a biologist, but, but you have cows in that area that are 10 plus years old and they're educated. They know a thing or two. Mm-hmm. So I would go out on a limb to say it's actually a little bit more difficult. The only flop side of that is you don't have public pressure, but you don't have those other variables that kind of come into play. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> I asked in the beginning, what's your horror stories? I don't really have any really enjoy my clients. So if I'm going, if I'm going to start going on guided hunts, what would you say are like some of the pet peeves that um, you would really appreciate from a client? From, from show up with new boots, the whole yeah, thing. And have a, and be ready and have a positive attitude. Like okay. I said, I might, all my clients have just been there. They've all been incredible. I don't have a bad thing to say about any of them. Do I wish there was a few that could a little bit better or shoot a little further? And, and we just got done talking about not shooting too far, but we've had some people <laughs> that come out and they're like, I'm good up to a hundred yards. Back where they're from mm-hmm. in Pennsylvania or, you know, wherever the case may be, 100 shots is like a super long shot for them. It's crazy. And then we're like, oh, yeah, where we're going to be going, you're probably in that 250, 300. So we're, we're asking them to exceed, you know, what they can do. But that just goes back to doing the homework mm-hmm. with um, your outfitter that you've chosen. Um, call them. Call the outfitter. Ask them what the expectations are. Um, so th- I, I would say that for any guy, that's probably useful information to pass on to those seeking or potentially going on a guide hunt is reach out to the outfitter, ask them about expectations, about shot distances, weather, temperature, things of that nature, and then plan accordingly. My experience as well with guides, and I have a few friends that are guides, is they like to work harder for the guys who are willing to put in the work as well. Like they want, if you're out there trying to glass with them and not just sitting back and letting the guide do all the work, they're going to work a little bit harder to help you. And they appreciate that more. I, that's my experience. I, I hate going out and I'm not going to go back and sit at the side by side where you go find the animal for me and they come out and kill it. I want to sit down with the guide. I want to be there with them. I want to help them. If I kill an animal, I want to help them drag that thing out. I don't just want to sit back and let them do it. I want to get in there and hold the leg up for them. I just watch um, the guy. Um, and me personally, I'm working just as hard for a guy that I've had. This is the first time or a return client that's been back two or three years. You're still gonna get. You're gonna get my all because that's what they deserve, okay. and and that's what the outfitter expects of me. And I'm gonna give that to them in return. As far as the helping, as far as glassing and holding that leg up or 
those are all, I, I don't expect it, but yeah, those, they are definitely appreciated. And when, you know, you down a bowl and it, by the time you get to it and everything and get it quartered up and it's one o'clock in the morning, if he says, Hey, I want to carry the head, you bet. Here, let me pick it up for you. Here, <laughs> you get your pack on, I'll position it for you. So, but so it, it, yeah, those things are freaking heavy. And, but why wouldn't you? Why wouldn't you want to, if you're going out and doing something like that, you want that experience, right? You want to be able to carry some of your game, carry some of your harvest mm-hmm. and be out there glassing and spotting. And that's just all part of the experience. It, it's not about the, the antlers and the meat. And it, it's more than that. It's hunting. And I think people that really understand hunting, it's it, it's about being outdoors. It's being with like-minded people. It's having the, what's the way, way to describe it? Uh, I just lost my train of thought, but it, it's about being out there and enjoying the hunt. It's the experience. If you want to, if you want meat mm-hmm. or just a rack on the wall, and then some people that's that's their ultimate goal. That's fine. But I, I think people come out west more so for the experience. And of course, the ultimate goal is to mm-hmm. harvest an animal and a, a mature, healthy animal. But there's more to it. If you're going to do something with an outfit, if you're going to do something with an outfit, or get the full experience. How important? How important is you strike me as like a glass half full kind of guy? How important oh is a positive attitude it, to, to Western hunting? Is, I tell people all the time: PMA, positive mental attitude, because it can change so things can change so quickly. Mm-hmm. I had a, a father and son from New York two years ago, and they put in the work. We hiked. We did everything we were supposed to do. We went to several different spots where um, historically I've done really well in, and they're just. We weren't seeing, we we're seeing a lot of cows, um, a lot of deer coming through. We just weren't seeing any elk. And again, that's just one of those variables that sometimes you can't control those type of things. Everybody, all the other guys that are around us, two, three drainages over in their areas, we're just knocking them dead. I don't know. Maybe it's just, I don't, I'm not sure, but they weren't there. And the client I have, awesome guy, he stayed positive the whole time. And it was probably, I don't know, maybe 30, 40 minutes before dark. And this guy has such a great attitude. He was just like, I've enjoyed myself. My son shot a bull. I'm good. Let's if you like, let's pack up. And I was like, yeah, let's, let's hang out for a little bit longer. And it, we'd been watching the same area for a couple of days now, off and on between switching from a morning to evening and oh, national weather. Hold on. <laughs> Storm warning. Okay. But yeah. We got some Arctic wind and some heavy snow coming in. That was the national weather alert. But he had such a great attitude. And we, like I said, we sat in that spot for several hours, blast the crap out of that area. And in an instant, like we stood up and we were just stretching our legs out. And when he was just like, you know, I, I, he, he, he started talking at a higher volume. Oh, this is the end of the hunt. And as soon as he started talking, I was like, right there, shoot that bull. And the area we've been watching for all that time, a bull walked right out to the middle. I gave him a cow call. And he pumped him out 290 yards. But and it's persistent. That's awesome. That guy could have easily, on the second or third day, threw his hands up in the air and said, oh, I paid this and this sucks. And it brought down the mood of himself and those around him. But he stayed positive and he harvested great animals. So def- definitely the attitude's key. Yeah, for sure. I think I think it's it's very evident to everyone that they paid money for their hunt. That's the guy that they want to kill yeah. something. I don't think we're reminding you of that. It's a good idea. I think guides are very, the tension's in the air already. You already know. But yeah, that's like my MO for being successful as a hunter is what I lack in skill, I make up for in just persistency and being out there. Because if you're out there long enough, luck happens. Like luck is, I don't want to say luck is manifested, but luck, 
If you stay out long enough, something's going to show up. If it doesn't, then you tried your hardest. If you're out there long enough, every once in a while, a freaking elk's going to walk over that hill or a deer's going to stand up or something's going to happen and you're going to be in the right place at the right time and you're going to kill that animal. And that's happened to me countless times now where it's just like a willingness yeah, to not absolutely. quit has gotten you, you me. You hard. And you never regret it when you go home. If you oh, yeah. go home two days early, every time you I regret it. You the mountain with any reservation. You stay at the end, never regret it. That's on you. If you didn't put in the time, if you didn't put in the work, or if you gave up, or whatever the case may be, that sucks. But if you can go home and say, hey, I gave it my all, I gave myself every opportunity, then you're just going to be that much better off. Not only that, so now hunting season is coming to an end. Yeah, like tomorrow. Right? I'm going to Mexico this week. That's just going to be awesome. But I'm just, yeah, I'm going on, th- going on Thursday. <laughs> yeah. But like, you never, like, when you're out there and you're like wanting to quit, don't forget that yeah. you just spent nine months dreaming of being where you are. And you want to be there so bad. And as soon as it's over, you're going to be, unless it's you and you go hunting again with another client. Like I'm going to be back in the office dealing with freaking, no, I run a sheet mail company dealing with project managers and foremen and, and, and vendors. Like, and I'm going to right. be wishing I was back out there getting my butt kicked by some milk. So it's just never forget that. Like you waited all year to get there. You were so excited. I've never gone to a hunt and been like, this is going to suck. It's you, you're driving there that like 10 hour drive and you're just pumped up. And you're all you can think of is, 200 inch mule deer and 350 inch bulls. And it's just, you got to remember that. That's the excitement you got to carry through the whole hunt because on day five, that freaking bull can stand up like you did for your client and you can freaking hammer him. And you have that awesome story. And I guarantee you that story, no, it's part he of would story. Win, change it, it for the it world. It becomes part of the experience. You have to embrace, you have to embrace stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Some of the <laughs> yeah. best moments I have hunting are, you know, the terrible ones for me and my brother was like, even if it was something like a cow hunt or something like, oh, if you remember that time, we freaking had inadequate gear and it rained sleet. Like we had all four seasons in one day and we packed out, went completely the wrong direction <laughs> and chose the worst route possible. And it took us six hours of just embracing this hell. But that's a good memory. It sucked at the time, but it was great. Yeah. So that, that yeah. My goodness, there is there are no shortcuts in the wilderness hiking out. I'll put you that part about going the wrong way in a six hour hike out. Go back the way you came in. <laughs> I, you can't I go wrong with it. I swear. I regret I, it every I, time. If I just go direct line here, I can just cut up over this and, and you just end up, you know, in a deadfall jungle and you just misery. Yeah. <laughs> go the route you know. Go the route you know. Every it's time. A lot more efficient. Every single time. All right, dude, we're in that hour mark. Let's uh, let's wrap this thing up with a hunting story. Let's get, get hit me with a good yeah, hunting story real quick, and let's let's wrap this thing up. Um, so I had a client that came out, and uh, this was it's just one of those random like things you're just talking about. Like it, it sometimes luck just happened. We hunted an area for probably two or three days. Mm-hmm. Saw some bulls in the distance. Had some close encounters, but just no shot opportunities. And it was, I believe, it's on the third or fourth day. We're walking back down probably three, 400 yards or so away from where I parked the truck. And we're coming down the steep back embankment. And I knew there was a wallow down below. And I heard splash and out popped a cow. And sure enough, right after that, another splash. And I told my hunter, I said, get ready. There, there's a bull behind this cow. And bull comes out right in the open. He shoots one. He's let me know. And I'm like, it's a five by bang. Goes off. But he hits this bull, and his bull just <laughs> tears off assholes and elbows. He is gone, running. And between it, the bang like surprising, surprising me, and 
a brief moment of commotion, I didn't see exactly where the shot hit. And sure enough, he hit him great, but this bull just beelined it to just tore off down this like straightaway cut, like almost like a cattle path and ended up nosediving probably 15 yards away from the truck, like in line with the truck. That's awesome. I was like, I just, <laughs> this I is a good story. Like, this is a great story. <laughs> that happened all the time. That's incredible. And it, it wasn't a bull that we'd seen. I've been watching. It was just one of place, right time, right moment. And it's having him nosedive right in front of the truck or excuse me, right at the tail end of the truck was just, I, I, you can't beat that for, for me anyway. That's a story. That's a, that's a storybook ending right there. Every time I kill an elk, it's in hell and balls my body hurting for three weeks after packing that thing out. Elk. I hooked the winch up into the bed of the truck, split them open right there. Wow. <laughs> it was a, the, and it was like, we got back, bowl in the bed of the truck, and breakfast wasn't even done. It was great. This can't get any better. That, that is a total guide story right there. Robert, that was awesome, dude. So what do we want to with you? Where do we go? R&K Hunting Company. Numbers are posted all. The R&K Hunting Company, hands down, one of the best outfits in Utah. Some of the best guides. Uh, I'd, I'd be willing to put up that statement against a, a great portion of the state. We have some of the best guides. Uh, the company itself is incredible. Land's incredible. Uh, access animals, you name it, you're going to get a five-star treatment. And that's why they have the reputation that they do. R&K Hunting Company and grab one of those awesome. numbers and uh, yeah, get in touch with them and let's talk about your next adventure. And then, of course, if you want to throw me out there as who you're requesting, that's cool. Uh, but you're in good hands with anybody you come in contact with R&K. Awesome. So Robert Clark, R&K Hunting Company. Hey, what about Instagram? Want to follow you on that? Are you public, private, anything like that? Or you know? No, I'm, I'm on Instagram. It's under uh, Clark Marine 10. Okay. So, yeah. So go give him a follow, guys. Uh, Robert, that was bitching, dude. Let's do it again. Like, yeah, make sure uh, you're keeping me in the loop on, on some of your next drops, man. I'm, I'm pretty pumped. Uh, I got some stuff coming out you're going to like, bro. You're going to like it a lot. P.S. For those listening, haven't put your hands on Drew's tripods. You're wrong. <laughs> you're dead wrong. You need to get your hands on one of them. I mean... I'm going to just give me a few minutes, but these tripods are incredible. For the longest time, I would pick the beefiest, heaviest tripod at a video head just for stability. And so that way it can take the abuse that I'm going to put it through, you know, 50, 60 days at a time. Mm -hmm. I put my hands on Drew's tripod and pan head. And he told me, he's like, no, no, no. I know you like the you know, the fluid head. I know you like the video head, but give it a whirl. I am blown away and having that much less weight to carry and having the tripod that is just going to withstand whatever you need is such a bonus. I mean, I've literally used your tripod and propped up a bison. Like it was, it was getting ready to turn just a little bit. <laughs> That's awesome. And I, I shoved your tripod under there and it held, I mean, carbon fiber, lightweight, Panhead smooths butter. Like, get your hands on one of these tripods. You will not be disappointed. Awesome, dude. Uh, just everyone knows Robert is not a paid uh, Tricer Sports sponsor. So, uh, thanks, bro. I appreciate that a lot. I can't do it without guys like you. Definitely not paid, but I can tell you after putting it through the ringer this whole season, it's a keeper. Absolutely. All right, bud. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks, dude. Let's end on that, man. Let's do it again. Thank you for listening to the Tricer Podcast. Do us a favor. 
or like and subscribe on whatever platform you're listening on. Give us a follow on Instagram and Facebook at Tricer USA. And go and check out all of our innovative gear at www.tricerusa.com. Until next time, shoot straight, have fun, and always put God first.